Welcome to Coastal Currents with Aaron Reed. Your journey into discovering the amazing people and wonderful happenings in and around the Cothet region. Since her days as Powell River's first youth ambassador in 1994, Erin has continuously been involved in our community. Her love of the Cothet region and her understanding of the importance of connecting to the people living around you inspired this podcast. Coastal Currents is a no-holds-barred look at what's happening in our neighborhoods. But more importantly, it's about the people who live, work, and play here. Insightful interviews, frank conversations, and often hilarious discussions of issues, ideas, and people that matter to you. This is Coastal Currents. Here's Aaron. Welcome to Coastal Currents. I'm your host, Aaron Reed. Season one, episode nine, features a frank and open conversation with Mr. Russell Werner, a professional firefighter with three decades of experience in his field. We discuss his start in Powell River, his long career, but we also spend a lot of time discussing his now five-year battle with PTSD and WorkSafe BC. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and the note on the Canadian Mental Health Association's webpage indicates the following. Empathy. It's the capacity we share as human beings to step into each other's shoes, to understand where they're coming from and what they're feeling, to listen hard and refuse to judge. It's also one way to reduce and resolve conflict. Hashtag get real about how to help. Before you weigh in, tune in. The following episode is a conversation between the host and guest based on personal experiences and reflections. It is in no way meant to take the place of the advice or opinions of professionals within the medical field. Listeners are also cautioned that we discuss sensitive issues relating to mental health, including depression, PTSD, and suicide that some may find to be a trigger. Today's guest on the podcast is Russell Werner. So you said you were fine with starting with a quick game of this or that to get going. Sure am. So here we go. Netflix or YouTube? Netflix. Phone call or text? Phone call. Cardio or weights? Cardio. Mobile games or console games? Oh, both. (laughs) Console games. I'm a gamer. I'm an original gamer from Pong. Oh, there we go. Uh, I had Coleco. Yeah, I had that too. (laughs) Swimming or sunbathing? Swimming. New clothes or new phone? New clothes. (laughs) Football or basketball? Football. Work hard or play hard? Both. Yeah. Jogging or hiking? Both. Receive email or letter? Email. Blue or red? Red. Okay, one more. Oh, the age-old question, Coke or Pepsi? Coke. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) Not so bad, right? Not so bad. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about you. You're born and raised Powell River, right? I was, yeah. Born in the old Powell River Hospital. Okay, in the town site? Out in the town site. Yeah. A long time ago, 1969. And then spent my whole life growing up here. Uh, Moved away uh, 1993. New Year's Day, 1993. Oh, really? Yep. And was gone for 13 years and then moved back. Okay. What area of Powell River did you grow up in? Right down in Westview. So you remember the old night news store that was a couple doors down from Monk's yep. gas station? Uh, the night news, we're the White House right beside it, which is now the Little Hut Curry. Oh, okay. Yeah, that oh, was, really? Yeah, that, and that property went from Marine down through to Willingdon. And there was uh, two houses on the property. Wow. Yeah, it was interesting growing up there. It was interesting, kind of right in the heart, because the Marine was the happening place in the 70s. and That's right. 
yeah, it was a neat place to grow up. It must have been busy, right? Not certainly not comparatively to today. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but what was neat back then was um, corner stores were a big thing, right? So you know, we had, Palo Verde at the time had all sorts of corner stores. You could walk half a block and there's another corner store. And so where Night News was located, it was very central and quite close to the beach. And a lot of teenagers and stuff in the summer would do is they'd go and buy their drinks and then they'd sit up along the fence that ran along there. It was a old two by four style fence at the time. Okay. And they would sit on the railing and they'd drink their pop and their booze and whatever like that <laughs> and throw all the empties over into our yard. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it was a really neat place. Close to Willingdon Beach. I mean, I was had right, the water was right across the street. So so what elementary school would you have gone to? JP then? Dallas. You went to JP Dallas. Yeah. Okay. How about you? When it was JP Dallas. I've been to a few different ones. I went to Stillwater, JC Hill, James Thompson. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then Brooks and Max. Yeah. So. Brooks and the old Mac. Yep. Yeah. Probably like old Max. Yeah. I actually moved away for a while too. So born here, grade one, I moved to Mission and moved back in grade nine. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Here every summer and everything because family was all here. But right. yeah, had those years away. So nice. when everybody else graduated and wanted to move away, I couldn't wait to stay. <laughs> You'd already been away. I'd lived in Mission. So yeah. just saying. I know. <laughs> I know. I lived as far east as Maple Ridge. Okay. But, uh, that's, that's close. Yeah. Yeah. When you left for the 13 years, mm -hmm. what were you doing? Well, I left to follow my wife initially. She wanted to go to university, so she uh, applied to SFU and got in. So I stayed behind to sell our place and tidy up a little bit. And then I uh, went down to the city. And at the time, I'd already been pursuing firefighting. Okay. So I just kind of kept that up down in the city. Of course, you had to have a full-time job while you were doing that because it's, it can take quite a while to, be, to get into the fire department. Right. Did odd jobs, Did worked as a first aid attendant when I was down there, worked on a lumber yard, worked at a mill, um, worked security, whatever I had to do. And then I got into my electrician's apprenticeship Okay. with the IBEW. That's the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Okay. Did two years of my apprenticeship and then still applying for departments fire departments, and then uh, finally got the call from Vancouver to um, see if I wanted to come and work. Really? So what year was that that you started with Vancouver? 1995. 1995. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you've been going ever since? Been going ever since. It's, a, it's an amazing job. I've equate our job to pro athlete. Okay. You know, they get paid to, uh, to do what they absolutely love. And I'm one of the fortunate few that can say that. I get paid to do what I love. You know, I wish everybody could say that about their job, but unfortunately they can't. <laughs> That's true. What, what would be your favorite thing about the job? Oh, there's, there's so much. I'd have to say the brotherhood. Like we literally seriously are one huge family. I've been all over the States, a few provinces in Canada, other countries. And no matter where you go, you, you know, you mentioned you're a fireman and you're talking to another fireman, you, you immediately have a connection. Right. And we've had uh, people have kids out traveling in the world. They get hurt you'll phone up the department in that city. Hey, can you guys send someone over? Oh, we'll be right there. And literally, they hang up the phone and within an hour, there's somebody over making sure that your kid's okay. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible, pretty incredible um, experience. It's nice to have that connection for yeah. your work. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, on our job, there's a lot of, like, we have hockey teams, soccer teams, rugby teams, uh, curling teams, base, they throw together baseball teams. So there's a lot of stuff that we do to get, that, that gets done together outside the jobs. So. Right. Maintain yeah. that connection. Yeah, you bet. That's good. If you were you were gone for thirteen years, but you got in 
with Vancouver Fire Department, yep. 95. So that means if you've still been working in Vancouver all this time, mm-hmm. if you came back after 13 years, that's a lot of travel. Yeah, it was a lot of travel. So um, how's that worked out for you? Um, not bad. You know, we initially moved back because being in the city wasn't working out for one of our children. Okay. And for the sake of, you know, everybody's mental health, I guess you could say, yeah. we moved back to Palliver where we had family support. Okay. It was being a firefighter, it was really difficult to find daycare that could accommodate your schedule because uh, in the yeah. city, everybody just wants, oh, you're Monday to Friday. These are your spots. It was it was really interesting. For a while when my dad retired, we were flying him down every four days and I'd go pick him up at the airport, take him back out to Maple Ridge. He'd watch our babysitter kids for four days. It was cheaper than paying daycare. And I was paying for his flights and all that. Wow. It was way cheaper than daycare. But then we finally did find someone that, that could do that. Um, we spent another couple of years down there. And then um, one of my sons has some health issues, some chronic health issues. So we just decided, well, actually, I shouldn't say we. My wife decided. <laughs> she goes, I'm taking the kids and moving back to Powell River. You can come if you want. If you don't, that's okay. And I'm like, well, of course I'm coming. <laughs> I'm part of the family. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. She, she, she'd rather kick me to the curb than the dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, so we, we moved back and um, I was very blessed to be able to keep my job and commute back and forth. It, it wasn't easy at first because the kids were really, really attached to me. Okay, yeah. And the roles were kind of reversed because historically the women are the primary caregiver to the kids. They're usually a lot home, a lot more with the kids. And in our roles, they were different because my wife worked Monday to Friday and I only actually worked two day shifts a week. Okay. So it was just natural that I, you know, I was their main caregiver. So it was really hard on them and me when I first started doing it, but it doesn't take them long to forget who you are. (laughs) (laughs) Kids are pretty resilient that way, aren't they? they Yeah. And you know, you and I both growing up here in Palo had, I'm sure had friends that whose parents were loggers yeah. and they'd work in camp. We'd be gone for three months, two, three months at a time. I was home every week, but only for a couple of days. Right. And then I'd be gone again. So did you need a separate place down there or was it? Yes. You did? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was very fortunate for the first number of years. I was able to stay with some friends. Okay. And in exchange, they didn't charge me. In exchange, I was a um, impromptu babysitter when they needed one. I refenced their yard. I did a master bathroom reno for them. So I was trading off doing work and stuff like that for being able to stay there. Right. And then um, I had to find a place to stay and uh, was fortunate to find another firefighter who owns a condo and he rents it out to uh, four or five of us. Oh, okay. That's a good idea. Yeah, Yeah, it's really good. That is a good idea because I think that's always one of the biggest challenges when you have to work away from home, whether it be camp or something like that, is then having to pay for accommodation somewhere else. Plus your home expenses at the same time. Yeah, I was definitely, um, we've definitely been meaning maintaining a couple households that's for sure yeah that gets costly what are some of the annoying questions people ask you as a firefighter that you wish they didn't ask you you know i i really don't get any i've never really had any annoying questions about, really yeah everybody's uh interested in what we do you know everybody this is, i don't want to sound arrogant because i'm it's not the way it's meant to sound but you find that everybody loves firefighters right and so they're they're usually very respectful and and whatnot that's good i don't get any and any i mean is there really any stupid questions 
there can be. I mean, it was some people pry on things that could be kind of a morbid thing to ask, and you know what I mean. Like, well, yeah, they, I have had the, I have had that, but I've never taken offense to it because okay. it's just their morbid curiosity. And right. and let's be perfectly honest, it's not politically correct, but black humor is a huge part of how we cope. Yeah, and people can like it or they can not like it. It really doesn't matter. It's it is a. It, it really helps. So right. it's a way to distance yourself from the situation that you have to be yeah, involved in. Yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. So when I have had a few guys, a few people come up and, you know, maybe you're out of social or something, they've had a few and they're maybe a little more, we'll say a little more forward than they should be. And, you know, you know, what do you make on your job? And I'm like, well, it's, it's, it's like a thing I've seen on social media a few times. Mm-hmm. Well, I make that mother's life a little bit easier as her child's dying. How's that? Yeah. And then they're kind of like, oh, well, uh, and then they kind of just mumble and, and walk away. Yeah. But uh, that that's a, ver- that's a rarity. Most people come up and they just want to thank us for doing what we do. Yeah. Your work's very valuable. What yeah. is, have you witnessed that's been really funny on a call? You must have seen some funny things. Oh my gosh. Yes. And uh, probably none of them I can mention on the air. <laughs> I, I honestly can't think of anything I can mention on the air that's funny <laughs> that, that I could, that I could repeat. Um <laughs> They must be good then. They are over the top and completely inappropriate for for, uh, any type of on-air discussion. If you, in your wildest, wildest imagination, can dream it up, it's been done. It's been done. It's been done. Yeah, there's some crazy... You walk into and you're just like, oh my, like eyes wide open. And it's it's not scary, but you're like, like, is this... (laughs) <laughs> it's just for real like and you'd someone if you're trying not to laugh and um you're trying to stay professional it's uh yeah it can be a bit of a challenge let's talk about work you did prior to being in the fire service sure my very first job as a kid i delivered papers oh my gosh from the time i was about maybe eight till i was like 12 or 13 and then I gave that up. And then when I could drive, my very first job was working at the Granada restaurant as their delivery boy for Gus and Joyce Lennis. They gave me my first job. Really? That's what my daughter's yeah. doing right now. Oh, get out. Yeah, that's what she's doing right as we're speaking. Oh, that's amazing. With four, four Granada? Four Granada. Oh, wow. Yeah. I just love Gus, Gus and Joyce. Yeah, I uh, spent a couple of years there uh, off and on. Um, when we came back to town, we were out there for dinner one night and she saw our boys and they weren't old enough to drive yet. But she's like, oh my gosh, you boys, when you get to driver's license, you've got to come out and see me and we'll give you a job too. Um, <laughs> Fresh meat. <laughs> yeah. And then I, um, I left the Granada when, just before graduated school. Graduated and left town right away, like most kids Back in the mid, mid, uh, or just like most kids, yeah, most like most kids, right? (laughs) Got to get out of town. That's right. So I got out of town, and was fortunate to be able to live with some family down there. But I sold vacuum cleaners door to door, really, just to make some money. Like, uh, yeah, that's a tough gig. It was a tough gig, but it was, you know, that was fun. That way you really met some characters there because oh, I was I doing that in Surrey. So Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's all sorts of characters living in Surrey. <laughs> and yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was an experience. I also worked in a sheet metal shop for a little bit and then decided, you know what? I just don't like living in this. The city's not for me. So I just spent the summer down there working and then turned around and came home in the fall. I think it was mid-September or something like that. Uh, came back and uh, within about a month I met my then girlfriend now wife okay 
Yeah, so we met in yeah, about a month after I came back in 1987, around October. Okay. How ironic that you moved back because you couldn't stand the city and then you've ended up having this career that spanned, I mean, how long? 30 years? Um, I've, I've been in the fire service total, including my uh, volunteer service for 32 years. Wow. Uh, but in Vancouver, I'm just finishing up 27 years. Wow. That's a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I didn't like the city, but that's where we ended up. But you know, life takes you at different times on different paths, right? I just yeah. wasn't ready for the city then. Once my wife went to university and we wrapped up everything here and went to the city, um, it was a different story. Like we loved it down there. We lived in White Rock. Mm -hmm. We're always down at the beach or I was what she was in university. <laughs> <laughs> so she was always at school. <laughs> she was always at school. And yeah. And then we stayed in the city for 13 years. You know, I got, that's where my career was. Nikki actually had her career was that she was finished school and now had her career started. Yeah. We were moving right along, had no plans on coming back. And then you get thrown a curveball, Right. Right. And then it's like, well, all right. Some things in life just more important than others. So we just got to pack up and Head back home. Do what's best for the family, you bet. Right. And, you know, and then I commuted back and forth. You learn to uh, watch a lot of movies and <laughs> <laughs> play console, video, play video games on your on your devices and stuff like that. But Do you drive back and forth and have to navigate ferries or do you just hop on the plane? I did for the first 15 years or so. And the last couple of years when I've been at work, because I've, I've been off quite a bit the last five years with an injury, I fly back and forth now. Okay. But... Um, again, I consider myself, it, this is just the right stage of life. I couldn't have afforded it earlier. It's very expensive. Yes. Uh, however, you know, uh, one child's not at home anymore. So the food bill has gone down. Um, <laughs> uh, he's in university. So the education but, expense has gone yeah, up. The education the, expense yeah. has gone away, but you know, um, it's worth it. Yeah. So I decided to fly back and forth because it's far less stressful. Right. Far less stressful than driving. I get off. Yeah, I'm home within 25 minutes. It can't, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's, you can't beat that. Yeah. So mentioning that you had an injury for the last five years. Yes. Did you want to get into that a little bit? Sure, I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit. In 2017, I wasn't feeling myself. I was very sad, very down. It was not myself, low on energy. I'm the kind of individual that was always working always, always working, doing something. Right. And I, all of a sudden I wasn't doing anything. And, um, a friend of, a friend of mine, uh, and coworker committed suicide in late 2016. I saw the process in hospital when he was on life support and what it did to his family and how it was ripping them apart. Sorry to hear that. And, uh, so when things started to turn a little sideways for me, I started thinking about him and how I didn't want to, I, I couldn't pass that kind of a pain onto my, my family. Because right. that to me, that's not ending my pain. That's just handing it off to somebody else. And right. I, I, I didn't want to make someone else feel worse than what I was already feeling. So I decided to go to my doctor, talk to my doctor and was, you know, still not knowing what it is that it, uh, that it was PTSD. My doctor was quite concerned, so she sent me to a fantastic counselor here in town. Uh, her name is uh, Christine Drummond. Okay. And um, Christine did a quick assessment on me. Although um, counselors can't clinically diagnose, it was just a real quick reference for the doctor okay. to have someone check real quick and, you know, does he fit, does he maybe not fit? And then if he does fit into to a mental health profile, okay, now we'll send him in the proper stream. Okay. So I did some evaluations with Christine and um, I checked all the boxes for PTSD and 
Uh, as a matter of fact, she said, tomorrow morning, I want you to show up at your doctor's office. You don't have an appointment. I'll make sure you get in and you need to go see your doctor. So they, I've had an amazing medical team helping me along the way. And uh, my, my doctor, Dr. Marantet, uh, got me an expedited appointment in to see Dr. Bell, okay. psychi- local psychiatrist here. Then collaboratively with seeing all those people, the psychiatrist evaluated me as well and said, yeah, you have PTSD. I learned, of course, a lot about PTSD through this long journey, that there's um, you know, a single episode PTSD, and there's what's called complex PTSD. And complex PTSD is acquired over repeated exposure over time to traumatic events okay. rather than single episode. So although I have a vast library of, of horrible calls that I've been on, mm-hmm. um, th- there isn't one specifically that um, sends me and that There wasn't me. one big event that it, it's, it's no, an accumulation of... it was an accumulation of, right. over uh, many, many years. So by the time I was diagnosed in 2017, I had already been struggling with it for a few years. I have to say, uh, having that uh, diagnosis of PTSD and then being put into the stream of getting help, number one, is painfully slow, um, Mm -hmm. uh, um, simply because you want to get better now. You want to get better now. Uh, Unfortunately, PTSD doesn't work like that. Like You break your arm, six to eight weeks, you know you're going to be good. You're out of your cast and you have some physio and you're good to go. Uh, mental health issues aren't aren't like that. By May of 2017, there was a fella at work who helps people with, uh, or he's our, I, can't, I wish I could remember his actual title, <laughs> um, but he, he works with the mental health of the other firefighters on the job. Okay. And in 2017, we didn't really have any program set up locally, like provincially, to help with mental health for first responders. But there was this... Uh, it's not a center because they hold it in different places. There's this organization in the States called West Coast Post Trauma Retreat, or WCPR for short. Okay. So. Well, CPR, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. And um, the different kind of CPR. Right. right? But uh, so my um, coworker was uh, single-handedly instrumental in getting me pushed above a waiting list and to get in immediately. And so that May, I went down to Phoenix, Arizona for a week-long uh, crash treatment course in learning about PTSD. And that was an amazing program. Met some absolutely amazing people. All the staff, the clinicians, the counselors, everybody that's at that WCP, West Coast post-trauma retreat is volunteering their time. Really? They're not getting paid to be there as doctors taking time away from their practice to come and volunteer their time to help the first or so that it's um, police, fire, paramedic, but in the States it's paramedic and fire. Okay. And uh, corrections. Corrections okay. are also con- lumped into this group. So I met some incredible people there and was able to unload a little bit of stuff, but there was no angels singing aha moment, right? right. I, I, you know, after a week I still left feeling like garbage feeling worthless, feeling sad, feeling depressed, but I had a little bit more knowledge. And what I noticed that what I was seriously missing here in Powell River was a support group. Hmm. I I thrive in uh, small group settings. Okay. There was nothing here. So I decided I was going to start one. So I started a uh, local uh, PTSD group for the first responders and veterans. What had happened was that I think it was that fall or that summer, 
of 2017, there was a health and wellness fair at the complex. I remember that. Yeah. And um, I bumped into Melanie Jordan, who owns and runs the um, Sunshine Coast Health Center. Okay. And I approached Melanie and I asked her if she would consider donating some kind of a space there for me to hold, just to hold these group meetings, you know, maybe once a week or once every couple of weeks. She said, yeah, that's interesting. Let's talk. And then she called me a few days later and she said, you know, I think you've got a lot more work to do yourself before you start this uh, group. And I'm like, you're right. You're a hundred percent right. But this is a need that I need and it's not here. So I'm, I, I'm a doer. I, you know, if there's, if you, you need something and it's not this, we'll make it happen. Right. She said, yeah, but I, I think you need to do some more work before you start that group. Melanie graciously offered have me out at her treatment center. And I was there for three and a half months. Wow. And it was life-changing. Really? And, and life-saving. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's as far along as I have been in my treatment, that's as close as I've ever gotten to back to some kind of a normalcy. Unfortunately, I only maintained that high level of um, or higher level of mental health and uh, whatnot for almost a year because I had gone back to work. Okay. And I was feeling really good. My employer has been amazing throughout the process. They were very accommodating me in gradually reintroducing me into onto the fire floor and going onto calls and and whatnot. Uh, I was a lieutenant at the time. Okay. Then I made it feeling really good. Everybody was happy. Uh, my doctors were all happy. And I went back to full-time duties. I got my own fire hall as a captain. And they were nice enough to put me out uh, towards UBC, which is um, uh, the fire hall 19. It's a little bit quieter hall. Okay. Uh, it used to be called the punishment hall because uh, <laughs> if you ever got sent there, you'd probably did something bad. And, and <laughs> no fireman likes being bored. And that hall's it's not completely, you know, dead, but it's busy, but not as busy as the downtown halls. Right. Fair enough. And um, <laughs> I was, but I was happy to go there because it took me out of the very, very busy downtown. I spent probably a good of my career, probably a good 15 years in and around the downtown core. Loved every minute of it. Loved being busy. And then I just got burnt out. So I was feeling good for about 10 months. And then um, had a call that uh, just triggered a few things and set me back a little bit. So I brought in our, that, that day that we had this call, I brought in our critical incident stress team to do with diffusing for my crew and myself. I was able to take the rest of the evening off because at the time I was still taking meds, um, multiple different kinds of meds for my mental health. One of them was um, a blood pressure medication called Prazosin. And I had to agree when I went back to work not to take that on my night shifts because what it does is a blood pressure medication, but I take a fairly high dose for someone who doesn't need it. Uh, I take 60 milligrams at night and it's a, uh, it helps stop the nightmares. Okay. I have a lot of nightmares and night terrors. The night of that day, that incident, I'm like, I need to get some sleep. I need, I need to, so I was able to take the rest of the night off. I went back to the apartment and I did some meditation, sent, tried to center myself, just took my meds, got a good night's sleep. And then I was back to work for the next night. And then I came home and my wife looked at me and was like, you, are you all right? Like mm. you, you don't look like you did when you left. You look like 
your death warmed over and I just, I don't feel just something going on. So went back to the doctor, booked back off um, on PTSD. I've been off the second time. So I was, I went back to work late 2018, worked for 10 months, and then I was uh, booked off again in 2020 and then went back to work on modified duties last, a year ago, last April. Oh, okay. And I've been working modified duties at work ever since. Unfortunately, uh, in my case, like one of my counselors says, you know, PTSD is notoriously difficult to treat. My current counselor right now is amazing fella, Chris Walford. I'd like to give a shout out to Chris. Mm, I know um, Chris. Yeah. He, he's an amazing guy. He definitely understands a lot about uh, PTSD from firsthand experience. Just a really easy guy to talk to. Well, Chris was a sheriff before. He was, right? yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, here we are today, 2022. I was... In 2017, when I was first diagnosed and I was, I've been, uh, I don't say when I was really struggling, but you know, I still struggle quite a bit. Yeah. But back then when it was really dark, how am I going to make my retirement? Because as firefighters, we heavily invest into our pensions while we're working. And if I had retired five years ago, I would have had to have find a, found another job somewhere doing something. And at my mental state at the time, that just wasn't going to happen. But you know, I, I pushed through and with the help of uh, Sunshine Coast Health Center, they got me back to work the first time. And then uh, this second time, uh, was a little bit more of a challenge. I had a lot more anger time around and uh, it's been, that's been difficult to, uh, to unwind and let go, but uh, I'm still here. I'm still here. Good for you. So I've made it to, to the point now where in December, after five years of being on WorkSafe, they basically pulled the rug out from underneath me and cut me off of vocational rehab benefits and completely ignore medical information uh, that's blatantly there in black and white. My vocational rehab consultant and I, um, we clashed. Uh, be the first to admit we clashed. But she, we clashed to the point where she was seriously deteriorating my mental health. Mm -hmm. And uh, hence, um, when we were speaking pre-show, uh, I mentioned that uh, January 5th of this year, I opted out of vocational rehab. They chose to ignore that. They acknowledged the receipt of the email, but they chose to hang on to it for a little over two months and then decided to kick me out of vocational rehab because they deemed me non-compliant for not having applied for a promotion within my department that was into an extremely stressful position and one in which I have not been medically cleared to take. Right. Because I'm only working in 20 hours a week right now. I'm, I'm, I'm not even close to back to full-time hours and this was causing me a lot of uh strife so um i had i had to take charge it's one thing i'll talk about i'd like to talk about with the uh, folks as well as you have to take control of your mental health and you have to take control of the direction it's going to go right particularly when you're dealing with an organization such as WorkSafe, they are not your friend they are an insurance company and make no doubt about it, they will do anything they can to not pay out on a claim. The Canadian Garden Council has proclaimed 2022 as the Year of the Garden. This came about as a way to celebrate the 100th anniversary of ornamental horticulture in Canada, according to a member of a local gardening club. Powell River is one of the cities, along with many others across Canada, who have decided to take this on. A group from the Powell River Garden Club are working to bring awareness. They're encouraging residents and businesses to get involved. They're asking everyone to help celebrate by planting flowers in pots, baskets, or gardens 
where everyone can see and enjoy them. They are also encouraging storefront window decorating with a garden theme. It's an opportunity to show pride in Powell River and help everyone feel more uplifted during these challenging times. Now, back to the show. This is Coastal Currents with Aaron Reed. In 2017, just before I had gone to Sunshine Coast Health Center, my counseling sessions had run out here with my counselor at the time, and she had submitted a extension of treatment request. And those usually, you send them in, and usually within a day or two, you get them back because you usually have an appointment the next week. Okay, yeah. Well, it had been four weeks this time that WorkSafe, there's no word. So I'm without support yeah. for four weeks. Wow. I've tried to contact my case manager to find out what's going on, getting run around, getting excuses. So I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Hung up the phone. And then I happened to get in contact with Melanie and I go out to Sunshine Coast Health Center. I believe it was the second week I was at Sunshine Coast Health Center. My cell phone rings and it was work safe. So I stepped out of whatever I was in and the meeting I was in and I stepped outside. And my case manager at the time was getting back to me about my request to attend Sunshine Coast Health Center from a week and a half prior. And she goes, yeah, no, we don't agree with that. Uh, we're not, uh, that's not one of our programs. We don't want you to go to that program. I kind of giggled and, and I'm like, well, it's a little late. And she's like, well, what do you mean? Well, I've already been in the program for a week and a half. <laughs> and she's like, you, and then she gets me, you what? You have to leave that program immediately or we're going to cut off your benefits. I lost my mind. Were they paying for you to be there? No. Well, no, it, it was, Melanie was gracious enough to allow me to attend West Coast post-trauma retreat at no cost. Okay. And God bless Melanie because that was a lifesaver. So I'm there at no cost to myself and no cost to work safe BC. And keep in mind, they've had me dangling out in the wind with no treatment for a month. And this is somebody who's just pretty much suicidal. My wife's been in a tremendous support. I swear to God, anybody else I had been married to would have been left a long time ago. Mm. But she said, she finally said, you know what? Enough. Enough with WorkSafe. They don't have your best interest at heart. We need to get you help, period. Right. So we took, I took Melanie up on her offer. As I said, I get this phone call. She threatened, they, the case manager threatens to kick me out. <laughs> I guess that was a little loud because uh, a couple of, different clinicians came out of their offices and um, outside and I was like, Russ, what's wrong? And I explained the situation and I, I had a breakdown, complete breakdown. Because here I'm, you know, my whole life, all I've ever done is serve other people. And I've, I, I'm, not, I'm not asking for a pat on the back. I, I don't want, actually, I don't want any recognition. Recognition actually makes me feel quite uncomfortable. It's just something I love to do. And now I'm in a position that I need help and the organization that is supposed to be there is turning their back on me. Right. Like you want to talk about a sense of organizational betrayal? Mm -hmm. The the staff, a couple of staff members come out, they gather me up and they whisk me right over to the psychiatrist's office. They had a, he, and he just happened to be on, on that day. So we whisk me in there and we start talking and he says, okay, you are not allowed to speak to WorkSafe anymore. You have to get an advocate or a lawyer. And that was the best advice anybody had ever given me for dealing with WorkSafe. Really? The phone calls and the harassment from them immediately stopped. Like I can't, so what happened was I, I finished my meeting with the psychiatrist 
and I call my union, someone from my union executive, and I say to them, who do we use as our WorkSafe lawyer? I need someone good. I don't just want to go thumbing through the phone book. Right. So they told me that the individual that they use, at the time they use this person, so I, I called up, I called her up. Her name is Sarah O'Leary. And um, I told her where I was. I told her the conversation that just happened. We spent about, oh, it was over an hour on the phone. She spent talking to me. And this is just a phone cold call off the street. Wow. And she goes, no problem. Yes, I'm going to take your case. She goes, Russ, give me 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and I'm going to call you back. Okay. So she hangs up the phone. She phones WorkSafe, tells them that she's there. She's my newly retained counsel. And what do you know? Lo and behold, WorkSafe says, no problem. He can stay there as long as he needs. Oh my goodness. So a half an hour before, well, a little bit more than half an hour now, because I've seen the psychiatrist and whatnot, but Within, within within the same day within the same day they changed their tune from we're going to cut your payoff we're going to be the bully and cut your payoff if you don't do what we say which was nothing which for was, 4 weeks which was nothing for 4 weeks right. so to to now when legal gets involved and it's like oh whoa yeah no so yeah no he can stay there as long as he needs wow and and the bullying by worksafe doesn't stop there it, it goes and goes and um, it's really sad I've found myself in a very fortunate situation that uh, through the aid of my union, Brotherhood, they've helped me out. I couldn't even, I, I have a real hard time even saying thank you. The words aren't enough because they have really stepped up to the plate and helped with my legal um, stuff for WorkSafe. And uh, uh, I know most people don't have that option, but uh, there are avenues for people out there who are having work, troubles with WorkSafe to take in order to deal with them. You know, anybody out there who's listening, who's ever had a WorkSafe claim, I'm sure at some point in time or another, you either have had it happen to you or you know someone when they're getting completely given the runaround by WorkSafe. Yeah. And that's one thing to do with somebody who has a physical injury. Yeah, their mental health's taken maybe a bit of a hit too, but we're talking now, they're doing that to people with serious post-traumatic stress injury, which is now been proven to be an actual physical injury of the brain right and they're playing those same kind of games well when you're at times just trying to stay alive to the next hour now you've got this organization that you've gone to for help who's turning their back on you and making it very difficult for you to get help it's no wonder people get so frustrated and, and have committed suicide over it right and you know in recent years too and i'm talking firefighters mm-hmm. it's really sad the NDP government has made great strides in improving some aspects of WorkSafe BC, for sure. As you know, we were just talking, they added three more presumptive cancers to the legislation for presumptive cancers for firefighters. Right. Uh, that's extremely important. Uh, but they commissioned a report not so long ago. And in that report, uh, I do believe it stated that it was, or it was suggested, and this report was commissioned by the NDP, to go back to a complete no-fault insurance that you go back to paying 100% of wages or not 75% of net. Right. And you go back to lifetime pensions. And, you know, I know some people have views, strong views either way on those those pensions, but there's two different types of pensions that WorkSafe offers. One is a permanent functional impairment pension, and okay. that, that is for an injury. So say I fall off a ladder and I blow my knee out, um, I go have surgery on my knee, but I only get about uh, 80% knee use of my knee back. Yeah. I have, for that knee, for whatever it's worth, there is a 
compensable pensionable injury there. Okay. Because you now don't, you've lost function in that. So, and then they have the wage loss pensions. Whereas if you can't go back to work and you're losing wages, you get compensated up to, I think it's now $108,000 annually, whatever your salaries are. Okay. They, NDP's taken it from 87,000. Then it went to, I think a hundred or 102. And I think now it's 108. So the NDP's made some improvements there, but my PTSD isn't going to disappear when I turn 65. Right. And this is now a, it's a permanent injury. I, you know, I, I'm still going through uh, recovery. It's very much a roller coaster. It's up and down. I, I wish it was a little more linear. Right. It would make it recovery a whole lot easier if it was, but it's not. A lot of times it's uh, two step forwards, eight, eight steps backwards. Right. And uh, with having to deal with the tribulations that WorkSafe has provided me, trials and tribulations, it set me back again. And these are things that people suffering from mental health and mental injuries should not have to even be thinking about dealing with. Because right. like I said, a lot of times you're trying to just stay alive to the next day. And really, if you're dealing with a mental health issue or a brain injury issue, then you're not functioning at the capacity to handle dealing with anything like that in the first place. Absolutely right? not. Yeah. 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 And, you know, PTSD is, is not a, it's not something that just affects me. I'm married. I have two kids. I have a mom and dad. I have a brother and a sister-in-law and nephews. And they've all seen me at my worst when I'm angry. And um, it's not nice. You know, a lot of my, I want to, if I could, I'll talk a little bit about my symptoms. Sure. For me, a lot of the symptoms started off, believe it or not, I was uh, vomiting. And I'm like, why the heck am I throwing up? Hmm. And it was stress. Okay. So it was the body stress response, my, my body stress response. And I've, ta- I've actually talked to a few people, um, doctors as well, who have said that they have a similar stress response. They'll, if they get really nervous or something, they'll be like stage fright. You're going to get yeah. nervous, you vomit before your performance. Right. Um, only I was vomiting in the morning because I was having so many nightmares at night and I wasn't rested in the, bo- in the when I get up in the morning, that's my body stress response to getting rid of the garbage from the night before. Right. Okay. And then with that came lack of appetite because who wants to eat when they're vomiting? Mm-hmm. Nightmares, night terrors. My nightmares, I don't remember a whole lot of my nightmares, but I remember every single one of my night terrors. Mm-hmm. And what's th- the difference between a nightmare and a night terror? So for me, a nightmare is something that you can relate. It would be... Like we were dreaming right now, say, and we're in a dream state and some monster comes through the door. That's, or you dream about vampires or, you know, something that you see and you can relate to, you know, everyday life. Okay. Something that scares you. Right. Whereas a night terror for me is something completely different and it is evil. It is, like just sitting here, it makes, it gives me goosebumps. Ooh. It is not even close to a nightmare. Okay. Usually... It takes place when I'm, so all, all my night terrors are me envisioning myself in bed as I am sleeping, as I would be sleeping at that moment. Yeah. And this black, faceless, shapeless, really evil, like, (laughs) I I can't even explain it. It's just really evil presence and it comes in and it's, it's usually pinning, pinning you down. Okay. Um, so and it's like you're living it in the moment, like it's. Yeah, but it's I faceless. What you're so, saying. have you ever seen Harry Potter movies? Yes. Okay, yeah. so that's know, actually what I'm envisioning. Yeah, the as Dementors. You're yeah. So that's 
if that's the closest way I could describe it. Something that we could relate to is a is a is almost like a dementor shape. Okay. Just shapeless, but it there is nothing good about it. It's just terrifying. It's it's yeah. terrifying, and it's a different fear than having a nightmare. Okay. And this is more like almost almost an autobotic experience. Like you're you'll be laying in bed. What I'm thinking is screaming and and rolling and trying to get this thing off of me and yet my wife says i'm just whispering mm. right and it's like that fight against you ever i don't know at any time been sleeping and you feel you're having a dream and you're feeling like you're caught and you can't and maybe you're wrapped up in your sheets or something and you're yeah. feeling confined well it's, it's just like that only you're not wrapped up in your sheets it's something pinning you down right okay um so anyway i take i take meds for that for my nightmares um as i mentioned earlier they do help but uh, when I really get stressed, as I have been the last five months, the nightmares really come back. And I feel bad for my neighbors. I've asked them a couple of times if they've woken up in the middle of the night to someone screaming because oh, no. I sleep with my bedroom window open. And on more than one occasion, my wife's gotten up in the middle of the night and closed the window. And then I wake up when the window clangs and I'm like, what's wrong? And she goes, oh, she goes, Russ, you're screaming, like oh. screaming, fire, fire, get out. You know? And then I'm like, oh, oh roll over. <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry yeah, sorry and then I, but i usually i don't remember those in the morning i don't i can think you could say what were you dreaming about last night when i closed the window oh, i have no idea because mm -hmm. it was just a regular run of the run of the mill i call them run of the mill nightmares <laughs> oh, you know usually involve lots of blood and accidents and stuff like that but um so lack of sleep's horrible uh, I had to go doctors really wanted me to go on um some sleeping meds at one point but i i just, I just kept refusing i couldn't do it but uh there's for me i really struggle with anger and that comes from just I, I think seeing all the injustices that i've seen you know people have the uh you know their their uh, automatic responses that's you know fight flight or freeze right yeah and flight and freeze aren't in, even in my vocabulary they're just not i've always been one to stand up for myself i'm not afraid to say what's on my mind you don't have to like it yeah. <laughs> but everybody knows where they stands with me. Right. right? It, it's just developed something in me where I'm just, you know, I'm angry an awful lot and I don't like it because it's not me. It's right. not, it's not the real me that that's the injured me and I'm not making excuses for myself yeah. um, whatsoever. Um, and I, you know, it's not a, oh, what was me story. It just, it is what it is. It know? makes sense though. I mean, I see, I see being angry at the things that you have seen throughout your career because I don't think people really understand what that's like. They talk about firefighters' pay and, and going to calls, but I just don't think the average person just understands at all what it's like to be a first responder. Yeah. Yeah. First on the scene, those things that you see that you can't unsee. That's right. So I definitely you know, empathize with that. You definitely hit the nail on the head there. The general public doesn't understand and having been in the industry, for lack of a better term, now in the field for as long as I have been, at times it almost hurts to hear people get angry at, at firefighters for, like you said, their wages or their pensions, or we need, in this case here, we need a new fire hall. The fact that people get mad because firefighters' wages are published in the paper and then they see how much they make and it's like, 
there's a lot more to it than that. There's overtime in there. There's vacation time paid in there, especially if they retired and it inflates their wages. And you their know, shifts pensions, fall where, they're where, where they, they fall. So you might be working stats. You might be working Christmas. Like 100%. Those, those shifts all have to be covered. Yeah. When I got on the job, one of the chiefs came in and gave us a chat and said, you have, let, you have attended pretty much the last family gatherings you're ever going to attend. Hmm. And we're all like, what do you mean? He goes, because everything that happens, usually you're at work. You know, you got to work. You got to be here. You're not taking time off for those things. It wasn't quite that bad as you get into the, then you, you see what it is. You can take trade shifts with guys and whatnot, right. of course. But, but somebody's got to work Christmas. Somebody, Everybody can't trade it away, right? Yeah, no, yeah. but you know, it's okay. I worked my fair share of Christmases and then I had my fair share off, right? right. So it, what hurts is when the public starts to get down on the fire on firefighters. We don't have it to the same degree in, in Vancouver as, we, as I think they have it here in town. But you're right. People don't know what it is that they do. The stuff that they take home to their families after it. Or, or that you can't because I, I think that's the other piece that that people forget too is you aren't able to just go home and tell your wife what you saw no right like that sits in your brain and you you yeah. internalize that and it, and i do understand the critical response the counseling afterwards and and trying to debrief in that way but it's still something that's in your brain that you take home and you can't just sit at the dinner table and let's talk about the accident scene i saw today where children died or or whatever. 100%. You know, we're, we're exposed to a lot. A lot of things that people don't think we're exposed to domestic violence, a lot of domestic violence. When someone gets beat or whatever, we go and we're there and we're there to help patch them up and console them. And, you know, we're there right along with the police and the ambulance. And often multiple times because that's often a cycle that continues. So. Most definitely. Yeah. And um, you, you, it is difficult to take it home for the longest time, probably the better part of two decades I didn't talk to my wife about my calls at all. Zero. She'd say, how was work? Fine. And we would leave it at that. Right. Because I didn't want to traumatize her with my visuals. Right. Right. And what it was that we had gone through. And yet, you know, I, I wish I had had this tool in my toolbox a lot sooner, but I can have those conversations with my wife now without the gory details. Right. And I didn't know how to do that before. But you know what? It's just enough to say, you know what, I had a horrible call. You don't have to get into the details. You can say, you know, I had a, I had a young child die today. Or, you know, I held the hand of a lady as she passed without getting into details. In my household, we had to come up with a number system to how I am doing. Okay. Day. Yeah. And how that transpired was my wife would come home from work. And I've been at home all day stewing about different stuff that's bothering me. By doing that, that has kept me in a in a bad place for that day. Keeps right. you know, in a bad mood. Right. My wife comes home, walks in the door. Hey, how's it going? How you doing? And she walks into a bear. It's like, whoa. And then she's, rather than at the time thinking, oh man, he's in a bad mood. She was telling me when we got to the point where we could openly talk about it through my PTSD was she was internalizing. What did I do? Mm, yeah. I just walked in the door. Why is he mad at me? I'm not mad at her. Not in the slightest. It's the state of mind I'm in because of my PTSD at the moment. So we came up with a numbering system, one to one to nine or zero to nine, zero being perfectly the happiest you could ever be. And nine being don't even, don't even talk to me. Don't even say hi to me yeah. kind of thing. Right. So we got those up and it took a little while to get used to using it. But what I would try to do is I would text her about a half hour before she'd leave work. Hey, hon, I'm having a really bad day. And that was all she needed to be able to come home and, and cope with me 
and not think that she's done anything wrong. She knows, hey, Russ is having a bad day. It's got nothing to do with me. You know, this is why I say I don't think there's a lot of other women out there that would have stuck with me because a lot of people might look at it as me trying to stifle their voice, right? You know, just shut up and don't talk to me. And, that, and that's not it. That right. is not it. Um, it's just trying to create space for that, that moment. It's trying to create a survivable space for me is what it's doing. Right. And then it got to the point where sometimes I'd forget the text, but where we have them, the numbers hung in the house when my, when my wife comes up the stairs and turns the corner to come in to our living area, the number is right there. And she just takes a quick glance. Okay. And she, oh, he's a eight. Oh, cool. All right. <laughs> I'm going this way. <laughs> yeah, but it, it it helps it helps her be able to handle me as well. Like, right. Okay. Knowing his state now before me just barking, it was really helpful to both of us. And did uh, the two of you come up with that together, or was that something? No, that, that you was did? one of my counselors came okay. up with that. Um, That's a good idea. I few times over the years, uh, not a lot, but I've asked Nikki to come to a couple counseling sessions. Uh, if we'd been having or if we'd had really big argument, I can see that she is at her breaking point i'm like oh, okay you know what let's i think it's time we both go see the counselor and it it wasn't about our really our relationship's fine yeah it was more about how can i interpret what's going on here differently right just navigating it together Nav right? na yeah. navigating it together and being inclusive uh, my boys i've right from diagnosis i didn't say anything to anybody until i got the confirmed diagnosis of what was going on but we've been open with my boys right from day one I had to involve my boys because at times I felt like I was not the father I should be. That I was, um, my mind was elsewhere. Right. Right. And uh, quite often angry. It's been a family journey for sure. Because like I mentioned earlier, it's not just me that's going through PTSD, right? It's, it's my whole family. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I'm very thankful that uh, I have a wife strong enough to be able to be there for me rather than just say, you know what, this isn't, this isn't worth it. So I'm very fortunate there. So going back to the WCB issue, mm -hmm. I know you had some things, maybe some tips to help other people navigate when that becomes a bear's nest or hornet's nest Yeah, for them to deal with. You've got some tips that, that you've kind of come up with. Yeah. Hello? You know, first and foremost, if you're having to deal with WorkSafe and it's a mental health issue that you're dealing with, the single best thing you can do for yourself to help yourself in the process with WorkSafe BC is to either get a worker's advocate or or a lawyer if you can afford one. The lawyers actually aren't as expensive as what you might think they are. And a lot of them work on, I know someone who, who has a lawyer, and what, a private lawyer, and what they're doing is they had to pay them like $1,500. And they have that in the bank. And as they work on your case, they deplete that $1,500. And then every, when they get run low, they re-invoice you and you've got to top it back up. Because, and I suggest getting someone else to deal with it because if you're having mental health issues, you are likely in no state to, on top of trying to get better through your mental health issues, you're in no position to be able to deal with WorkSafe. They will make mincemeat of you in a heartbeat and spit you out and not care. So back to my story, uh, when I was out at Sun Sunshine Coast Health Center and I got the lawyer out there, yeah, she phoned me back within that 15 or 20 minutes and said, don't worry, WorkSafe says you could you can stay. And what that does is when you're dealing with somebody who has legal knowledge of WorkSafe, all the the BS from WorkSafe stops because they don't get away with it with a lawyer. And my lawyer said, for example, Russ, you, there's no reason why the case manager should ever be calling you. Why is he calling you? I don't know. That's just normal. She says, no, it's not. They are. They don't need to call you. And this is proof. You're my client now. 
They don't ever call me to see how you're doing. They don't send me emails to see how I'm doing. All they're trying to do is trip you up because, you know, one day you're having a really good day. And how are you doing today, Russ? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Oh, back to work. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. So once I hired this lawyer, all the contact with them stopped. And it made the process so much easier because now I can focus on my recovery rather than having to battle the nuances of WorkSafe. Here's something I found out not so long ago, which kind of frustrated me is over the last five years, I've a lot of that time I've been a non-participatory partner in, in our household affairs. I, I used to cook, I used to do the laundry and all that. I don't, I, I haven't been able to do any of that. I'm back to slowly cooking now, but I actually even still don't have the capacity. If my wife were saying to me, what do you want for dinner? I'd be like, uh, I, I don't know, hon. That's, that's not important to me. I, I don't know. To ease my wife's stress, we hired one of those or subscribed to one of those food delivery companies. Oh, yeah, yeah. HelloFresh. HelloFresh, yeah. And, and that was a huge saving grace because now my wife didn't have to come home from work after working all day long and then cook a dinner and then clean up. What I was able to do is go downstairs to the fridge with this HelloFresh meals and I just grabbed a bag. There was... There was no thinking involved. And to a lot of people, that's going to sound crazy. Like, oh man, this guy's a nut job. You can't even think about what to make for dinner. You know, I'd probably think that about myself too, if I was the outside looking <laughs> in. But my mind is so busy and so preoccupied. There's no room in it for the mundane right. decisions. My life for the last 27 years has been about being on high alert. It's been about reacting to danger. It's been about saving lives. It's been about trying to save lives. Yeah. Now, when I'm caught in a day and I'm having a bad day and I'm stuck in these negative thought processes, there's no room. What do I, I don't know what I want for dinner. I, I feel I like know. eating. I don't even feel, yeah. yes, I don't, exactly. That was it for a long time too. I don't even feel like eating. So by subscribing to one of those food delivery services, that was a godsend. It really was for quite a while. Probably, I want to say a year and a half, two years, we probably... We probably did that. And then we stopped because we really didn't eat it anymore. We came to a different compromise where I'm now cooking more regularly dinners again. I just said to my wife, no problem. I will cook. Just pull out whatever it is you want for dinner. And you don't even need, like if it's, you want some kind of a chicken, just just pull chicken out and I'll say, okay, I got to cook chicken. And same. then you figure out what to do with and, the chicken. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then that's not a problem. Okay. I know we're going to have chicken. And she mentioned she wanted uh, this chicken casserole dish. Okay. I'll make that where... I didn't have that. I don't, I didn't have that capacity before because my mind is just so twisted up and, right. and preoccupied all the time with different thoughts. Sorry, you were asking. Um, oh yeah. So that's how we got onto the, um, the lawyer. Uh, you were asking about things that could help others. So that would be the biggest thing for yourself. Another thing is if you're struggling and you, and you don't know where to start, you don't know where to go. The first step's going to be the hardest. And that first step is reaching out. If you do that, that is the first step to the journey on getting better and, and, and then healing. Whether it's you reach out to a friend, a family member, a colleague, go to your doctor, go to somebody and just say, hey, I need some help. I don't know what's wrong. You will be amazed at the support you get. Absolutely amazed. And if you go to somebody and they're, they're don't, you don't quite get the reaction you were hoping for, tell someone else. Right. And it's not necessarily that that person that you're telling isn't maybe being a good friend or a good family member. They just may not have the capacity to be able to process that and deal with it themselves. Right. But you need to reach out. 
You have to, that's it's gonna save your life. If you don't have someone that you can confide in, there are, there's a PTSD Association of Canada. You can go online to their website. There's the Anxiety Canada website. Lots of good information on those. And there's also the Canadian Mental Health Association. Um, I know today's digital age, lots of people are into that. I'm, I am, but not, I'm still old school. I'm still an 80s kid at heart. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but there are a ton of online resources. And here's the thing, and this is, I mentioned before, you have to take control of your recovery. Right. You have to make the, no one's else going to do it for you. You have to make the choice. Do I want to get better or do I want to continue this cycle? This cycle is not healthy. I still struggle. I'm five years in to actively fighting this battle. I've been to four different treatment centers. One of them almost cost me my life. Um, mm -hmm. It was an extremely poorly run organization out of Vancouver. They were so ill-prepared for dealing with people with PTSD. I was so triggered that when I left that group after uh, that first day we were there, I just about jumped off the Granville or the... Uh, the Canby Street Bridge on my way as I was walking back to the hotel. Oh my goodness. And that was only in October of 2020. My point there is not everybody that you're going to run into through this process is going to be competent. So if you reach out, I should, I'd like to say when you reach out mm -hmm. um, and you get into counseling, which um, I highly recommend, it's extremely important to have a good relationship with your counselor. That is going to be number one to your success to have successful, successful counseling sessions. Yeah. If you go to a counseling office and you're just, it, I was at one here in town. There's nothing wrong with the counselor whatsoever, but right from sitting in the waiting room, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, this is not, this is not for me. And then I went in and I sat and I talked with her super nice lady, but I just, we didn't click. We didn't never. So I never went back. Right. But the key is go to someone else because the next person might be that one. And it, it usually wouldn't take more than a couple of counselors before you find a fit, right? Because you need to feel comfortable with 100%. that person. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Find a counselor that you're comfortable with and then stick with them. And it's a lot of hard work. When I started going to counseling, it was, I thought I was going to go to counseling and we'll start getting better. Yeah. And no, not in my case. In my case, it was, let's go to counseling and get a whole lot worse before we get better. That was because we were kind of opening up Pandora's box of uh, over two decades of... What got you there. What got right? me there, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you're not going to get rid of a couple decades worth of trauma in a couple months. You know, and WorkSafe, they want to pigeonhole you into that box of um, like a physical injury. Like I said earlier, you know, you break an arm six or eight weeks, you're back. It doesn't work like that with mental health. Some some people will go to treatment and they'll have that aha, angel singing moment and have that epiphany. And, and you'll hear those stories, but that is not the norm. Yeah. That is not the norm. Uh, my ride has been very much a roller coaster, very much up, then very much down. Every time you go down, it's hard because you're like, oh my God. Because you, you just had the feelings of some relief and feeling a little lighter. And now you're back into that pit again. But each time you go back into that pit, it's usually not as deep. It's usually not quite as deep. I'm, still, I'm five years in and I'm still in active treatment. It's a, it's a long journey, but something else that really helped me along the way too, is I've never been much into yoga or those kind of meditation, those kind of things. That's just never been in my uh, genre. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. I'm a convert. 
my doctor uh, here in town, Dr. Marantet, suggested that I go and try uh, some somatic movement yoga. And somatics is uh, very different than standard yoga, where the somatics that I've done is all just floor work. You're lying down, different positions, and it's it's trying to wring out the psoas muscle within your body that holds a lot of that tension and stress. You know, the first month I was going, I was I was just like, oh, this is hokey. This isn't working. But it didn't, you know, after about a month, it was like, I realized after a session, I'm like, oh man, I actually feel relaxed. And then I'd put my mat away and I get to the front door and that feeling's gone. Ah. Right? And then you walk outside and you're growing, oh, geez. <laughs> but it's very much a practice, right? It's like anything. You're never good at anything. Very few people can pick up a baseball bat and play baseball like a pro. Right? right. It takes a lot of practice. Yeah. And that's what I found with the med- with the yoga and the meditation, but particularly with the yoga, it took a while. But then once I was doing it on a regular basis, it was, it's so freeing. For me, it is very relaxing. And then with the meditation, again, I was never one to meditate. My mind's too active for that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so I actually found a device called a Muse, M-U-S-E. And it's a headband that you wear and very, very loose explanation by a a non-professional in that industry (laughs) is that I kind of equate it to where they monitor your brain waves. So what this app, what this does is it hooks up to your phone, an app on your phone. It monitors how active your brain is. Okay. So what happens is when you're nice and calm and your breathing is good, you're either in a neutral, a calm state, a neutral state, or an activated state. Okay. I'll set to the sounds that I like. I like the ocean sounds, sounds of water. So I'll have my water sounds going. And when you're really calm and you're focused on your breathing, all you hear is the waves just gently lapping on the shore. You'll hear birds, seagulls squawking and whatnot, birds chirping in the distance. But as your mind starts to wander off of your breathing and focusing on, on that, the headband picks it up and it's the waves start to pick up and it gets a little rougher. And then if you're way off tangent, there's a storm that's crashing, it's raining, the birds have stopped chirping. Oh, so you got to rein that in to bring it Yeah. Oh. So what it does is it, autom- it audibly signals me, oh, yeah, right, I'm not, I'm thinking about something else. And as soon as I come back and I focus on my inhalation and my exhalation, right back to calm again. So it's a great, if you've never meditated before or you have difficulty like I do meditating, this is a, an amazing device. Hmm. An amazing device to use because it, it'll auto, audibly trigger you. Interesting. And for me, that's like, that's great because I'm, oh, gee, okay, I'm not focused on that. And again, it's practice. You train yourself. Um, I could go on it. I haven't done it in a while, but I'll go on it and I'm up and down, up and down. And it's just, it'll, you know, it looks like a seismograph. It's like <laughs> an earthquake happening. Um, but it doesn't take that long. It doesn't take that many days to get into. You're spending more time in that neutral state and then you're spending more time in the calm state. That's been really helpful. And one of the best treatments that I've had is there's a clinic in Vancouver called the Swingle Clinic. And Dr. Swingle is a pioneer in treating the brain. Hmm. So the doctor I see at his clinic right now, his name's Dr. Dolschneider. And he was one of the doctors, I'm told, that uh, from him, that he was involved in part of the concussion study that they did in the NFL. Mm. Okay. So, yeah. and, and this clinic treats any kind of brain disorder, epilepsy, eye tracking issues, anxiety, depression, PTSD, concussions, a whole slew of things. And what they do is they map out your brain first, and then they find out what areas are are overactive, what areas are underactive. 
and for me my overactivities in the frontal portion of my brain and the slower activities in the back portion of my brain they're clashing the front portion is overcompensating because the back portion isn't producing enough of whatever it needs to produce and right. but rather than working together and offsetting each other they're actually clashing so what they do is through their techno wizardry <laughs> is they um for treatment for me they hook me up to a couple of electrodes in a different spots on my brains at different sessions and hook me up to a headset your brain waves are like a electrical current they go up and down right in the frontal part of my brain i'm i'm very high so what it does is when those the peaks and valleys when the valley hits of one of my brain waves and it comes down into that normal range a tone gets set off in a set of headphones that i'm wearing and the idea is it's all happening subconsciously you don't you just sit there and do nothing mm -hmm. it's kind of like that pavlov's dog theory i equate it to it's training your brain to be to, to have a certain response okay yeah the tone apparently they figured out is supposed to be really pleasing to the brain so when it when your brainwaves get into that neutral territory, the tone goes off, your brain wants to be back there more. I wasn't sure it was working for me until I stopped for about three months last summer. I went back to work into the city and then started up my treatments again. After the first weekend I came home, after one treatment, my I walked to the door and my wife's like, holy cow. Really? What a difference. And I'm like, what? what? She goes, that treatment has totally toned you down like you were... Your body doesn't look as tense. Your face doesn't look as tense. It looks like it's calm. So if my spouse is noticing, it's, it's got to be doing something. Yeah, for sure. How frequently do you need to do that? Uh, it depends on um, the issue you're having. For me, I would. Uh, there was times I was going a couple times a week. There was times I was going once a week. The idea is you stay with them for a while and go through your sets of treatments. And then the goal is that maybe you've only got to go one, back once a year okay, or once every six months. And if you happen to have um, extended benefits, it's covered under ex extended benefits and under psychological services. Hmm. But a huge help because they're not treating you with medications. They're not, yeah. you know, uh, I'm on some pretty, pretty strong medications for my PTSD. And one day I'd like to be off of them. Yeah, but sure. this place treats it at the source. Like if they can, if you, if they can normalize your brain waves and bring them back into, then there's no need for medications. There's no need for any of that other kind of stuff. Right. If they can retrain it to. If they can retrain it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it, it really, really does work. Something else that I find really helpful too is um, uh, my dog. During COVID, we had, I had to do all my treatments with another local center down in Vancouver by Zoom. And this one particular day, <laughs> I'm sure I was ranting. <laughs> and my dog, I was in my bedroom, had the dog locked outside because he's not supposed to be on the furniture. And he's an albino pity, an American oh, bully. Wow, okay. So he's about 85 pounds. So he comes in and I, I lift him up onto the bed and I get back in front of the, my laptop and my counselor, the therapist is like, oh my God. And I'm like, what? She goes, you would not believe the change in your demeanor from the time you got, went to go get your dog to coming back onto the camera because you're a completely different person hmm. and it was just that dog is he's my dog he's not a, he's not a certified service dog by any means but that dog is very attuned to me and when i'm having a real difficult time he wants to come in and he'll get right on my face and and try to calm me down it's pretty cute it's kind of funny it's a this is i think my third or fourth interview that's gone to the dogs <laughs> as to say because yeah that's they're awesome. kind of the general consensus right I, 
I actually kind of feel sorry for people that have never had a dog because I don't think you understand. I, I don't think they understand what they're missing by no. not having that unconditional love. So yeah, yeah, it I, really helps. I get it. Absolutely. And something else too, if you're, if you're suffering from mental health issues in particular PTSD, cause that's my experience yeah. is getting a hobby, getting active. And I know how hard this is that to, even now I do not, there's most days I don't want to go do anything, but do something, whether it's walk around the block, it can be a hobby. Believe it or not, when I was at Sunshine Coast Health Center, I took up knitting. Mm -hmm. Because when your hands are occupied and you're doing something, and I don't mean sitting on your electronic device, you know, surfing social media, because for me... That'll trigger it. <laughs> yes. For me, social media is a curse. I've, I've got to get back off of it. I will say this. I've got to get back off of it. I went back on it to sell a few things on Marketplace and then haven't deleted it again yet. But it is... It is full of different issues that will trigger me in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And why do that to yourself? Yeah. So, you know, so when I say, you know, do something with your hands, I've, I'm, I'm not a painter. I, I bet you I couldn't even do it. I'm so not a painter. <laughs> I could barely do a stick person. But I found these amazing adult paint by number sets on Amazon yeah. that are beautiful pictures. I've got working on one right now. That's uh, the Disneyland magic castle with okay. Minnie and Minnie in it. Yeah. You know, people might laugh. Oh, haha, paint my numbers. But if your hands are busy, your mind will focus on what your hands are doing. So it'll take you out of that headspace for a little while. Right. Right. Because you can't sit there and like, I learned to knit on these little round looms to make toques. So you literally can't, do that i can't do that and and stew and get mad and think about bad stuff because i, I gotta focus yeah. on wrapping the yarn around the, <laughs> the little ends and as funny as it sounds those little things are huge you know yeah. it'll give you a few minutes break and peace of peace of mind yeah one thing that really helped early on for me too and i haven't gone back to it because of the, since the pandemic but was pickleball okay i picked up doing playing pickleball here in town i think i was one of the youngest there for a while but it's a lot of fun and it just gets you out and gets you a little bit of active it gets you talking with people right and i know it's hard when you're in a shell and you don't want to come out you don't want to see anybody so you don't have to do that if you don't want to see but go for a walk by yourself do some painting do some hiking whatever go sit at the lake go sit at the beach if you're gonna go sit at the lake go sit at the beach i started doing this probably get a few people rolling their eyes but Take your socks and shoes off because one of my doctors at the Swingle Clinic was mentioning that there's something about the earth and our bodies and the, I, I thinking it's the electrical connect connectivity that, that they're the same. Right. So that, that's a good, for me, it's a good grounding exercise too, you know, spread, you know, put your feet in the sand, spread your toes and try to sit and feel in the moment, you know, and the other one really happy place for me is out in the forest. During the summer, I'm not kidding you, I'll take off my socks and shoes and I'll go for an 8K hike in the bare feet up around the Duck Lake area because there, there literally is something about grounding right? that really helps to calm you down. I've heard all these terms, you know, forest baiting and, yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't call myself a forest bather, but. Uh, <laughs> there is something about getting back to nature though, when you're feeling, I myself never been diagnosed, but recognize I struggle with anxiety myself big time. And I find just getting out in nature and listening to the birds and listening to the squirrels and just focusing on that yep. 
helps ground me for sure. Absolutely. It's amazing when your mind is busy and you're out, even out in the forest before you are able to calm yourself, how much you don't hear, how much you miss. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it takes a lot of work when you're struggling with PTSD in particular to be able to sit still long enough and calm yourself so that you can hear those birds chirping or the squirrels chipping or whatever yeah. it is, right? The wind blowing through the trees, the creek that you've been walking beside for the last two kilometers that you didn't even, couldn't even hear. Yeah. Those things are all really, really good. You know, there's so much support out there for people. They just have to, they just have to unfortunately advocate for themselves. Right. Because no one's going to guide you to the well. You've got to make these decisions for yourself. Everybody's got it in them. Everybody does. Because I have been in those dark moments where I didn't want to carry on anymore. And I wanted to end my life. It was my family, my wife and my kids that kept me from doing that. The thought of them. And like I mentioned before, I didn't want them to hurt. Right. It's been a very hard, long journey. Most times a battle. Mm -hmm. But I'm still here and I'm still plugging away. Well, so. I really want to thank you for reaching out and coming on the podcast, you know, opening up about that struggle, because a lot of people, people still battle with the stigma of, of mental health issues. I think we're in a much better place now. We're talking about it more than we ever have before. I think there's a longer road to go with that as well, to normalize it and realize it's like you said, it's an injury like anything else. I watched Dr. Phil and, you know, he talks about that. Your brain is it's like your other organs. It's It can be damaged and injured and it needs to be cared for. And uh, I think it's really important that we do talk about it. I do appreciate you being vulnerable and open and putting your trust in me to have this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, Erin. I, I appreciate you having me here and letting me able to tell some of my story. If I may... Just as we, before we depart, yeah. I don't know who, who listens to podcasts and, but if this happens to find its way to someone who can make change within WorkSafe, I would really appreciate them listening to my story because there's a lot more involved than what was just very briefly touched on here. Yeah. And it's really a shame when people can blatantly ignore medical information and mess with your, not only your mental well-being, but your financial well-being. Things need to seriously change within WorkSafe for mental health. They are changing, but it's, it's very slow. People are suffering because of it at the moment. Right. So I, you know, and anybody else who's out there who is struggling and hasn't been able to reach out, the single best thing you're going to be able to do for yourself right now at this moment is reach out. So please reach out. Thank you. Thanks. It takes an enormous amount of courage to speak about personal health struggles, whether they be physical, emotional, or mental. I am truly grateful to Russell Werner for trusting me with his story and choosing to stop the stigma and openly discuss his own struggles in order to help others who may also be experiencing mental health issues or issues with WorkSafe BC during their recovery process. Always remember that it's okay to not be okay. Everyone has a story and you matter to people you'd never even realize. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please reach out to your doctor for help. If you are currently considering self-harm, please dial 911 or call 1-800-784-2433 or head immediately to your local emergency room. Until next time, this is Aaron Reed. Thanks for listening to Coastal Currents with Aaron Reed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
For more information about the podcast, visit www.coastalcurrents.ca or follow us on Facebook at Coastal Currents with Aaron Reed. If you'd like to submit a topic or join the conversation as a guest, email Aaron at coastalcurrentswitharen at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.